Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Good to be back. We started the fall together. We're going to end the fall together, and I'm glad for that. Uh, we're still in Hebrews. You know that better than I, perhaps. You've been slogging along here week after week, and we find ourselves today in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, which is great. I'm so glad to get to be back here for this particular passage because it is a passage um, that's incredibly practical. It is down to earth. It's got a kick to it. It is a message of on to maturity. It's a great slogan, a great idea for us. So let's go on to maturity. You know, you, you've come this far. That's great. We're so glad for the progress that you've made. But let's go on to completeness, go on to perfection, not being a perfectionist, but being um, going toward that goal for which I was created, that full humanity that I was intended for, I want to be mature. Some of you think you are mature already. Uh, and there's a difference between chronological maturity and spiritual maturity. And they don't necessarily go together, although they often do. So... Here's a little thing for us to remember as we go on to maturity. If you think you're ripe, you'll rot. If you think you're green, you'll grow. So there's something here for all of us to grow on toward maturity. None of us has achieved perfection yet. And so let's move on to maturity as we look at Hebrews chapter 5, uh, beginning with verse 11 and through chapter 6, verse 3. Let's read the passage, and then um, we'll launch into explaining and applying the passage. Hebrews 5.11. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've prayed twice already this morning. John prayed for us, for which I'm grateful. Prayed for us to have ears to hear. Prayed for us to have hearts to receive. Prayed that we would grasp God's word. We put ourselves under it. And then we prayed, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour. May the peace of God my Father rule my life in everything. May his beauty rest upon me. May the love of Jesus fill me. May all of the, we've prayed over and over again. So do we need to pray one more time? Well, no, not really. I trust John's prayer and the other prayers, but we do need prayer. We cannot approach God's word without having our hearts right, without being plowed up a little bit, without having an expectancy that only the Holy Spirit can create in us and without eyes to see. Lord, help me see what it is that you wanted me to get from this passage today. Today, the Holy Spirit wants to teach us all something about moving on to maturity, moving on to maturity. I introduce it with, with two thoughts. One from the book of Deuteronomy from the Old Testament, which is completely fitting given that... Uh, Hebrews is all about connecting the Old Testament and the New Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 1. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, the king of Bashan, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, the Lord our God said to us, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, all of the land of the Canaanites, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, 
I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. You've been long enough where you are now. They've been here long enough. Get up and go into the land that I've promised. The land that could be for us a metaphor of our maturity, of our completion, that we've come out of bondage in Egypt and now we're moving into a land that God promised us. And so it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's already been hard. already been difficult. 40 years wandering in the wilderness, but now it's time. Let's go up. All right, second introduction to on to maturity is not from Scripture. It is from King Henry IV, Part 1, by William Shakespeare, Act 3, Scene 2. The king says to his young Prince Hal, who is a dissolute youth, But thou dost in thy passages of life make me believe that thou art only marked for the hot vengeance and the rod of heaven to punish my mistreadings. Tell me else, could such inordinate and low desire, such poor, such bare, such lewd, such mean attempts, such barren pleasures, rude society, as thou art matched with all and grafted to, accompany the greatness of thy blood and hold their level with thy princely heart. So please, your majesty, I would, I could quit all offenses with this clear excuse as well as I am doubtless I can purge myself of many I am charged with all. Yet such extenuation let me beg as in reproof of many tales devised which oft the ear of greatness needs must hear by smiling pick thanks and base newsmongers. I may for some things true wherein my youth hath faulty wandered and irregular find pardon. On my true submission, I shall hereafter, my thrice gracious Lord, be more myself. Why, Harry, do I tell thee about all my foes that are threatening our kingdom, which art my nearest and my dearest enemy, thou that art like enough through vassal fear, base inclination, and the start of spleen to fight against me under Percy's pay, to dog his heels and curtsy at his frowns, to show how much thou art degenerate. Do not think so. You shall not find it so. And God forgive them that so much have swayed your majesty's good thoughts away from me. I will redeem all of this on Percy's head. And in the closing of some glorious day, be bold to tell you that I am your son. Henry IV is really struggling because his son is in a mess. His kingdom's in a mess. He's threatened with civil war. It's not looking good at all. But his son, who ought, is going to be his heir, and Henry's feeling older all the time, sicker all the time. It's not looking good. And I'm going to turn the kingdom over to this guy who's just out there drinking with his buddies, getting into all kinds of scrapes and messes. He's just horribly unprincely. And I just don't know how that's going to work. Well, the civil war and Henry or Hal's uh, dissolute youth kind of come together in the great climax in the final battle of this thing. But we've already gotten clues before this, and then in this uh, interchange that we just read, Henry says, I'm going to grow up, Dad. I'm ready to become mature. I'm ready to change into more of the son that you wanted to have, that you hoped you would have. I'm going to be more of myself. I don't know if your father had that talk with you at some point along the way, that you, it's time to grow up, son. You're, uh, you're acting like a child. It's time to move on. It's time to become responsible. It's time to be mature. I don't know if your father had that talk with you exactly. But who has that talk with you now? Who has that talk with me now? If you think you're green, you'll grow. If you think you're ripe, you'll rot. None of us is ripe. None of us is mature. Who's going to come along and tell me, I'm worried about you. You need to move forward. You need to take another step. Well, that's exactly what the author to the Hebrews does. Is he comes alongside, and he's been going through all of this doctrine about high priest. What a great high priest we have in Christ. What a fabulous passage. 
in Hebrews chapter 4, and then beginning part of chapter 5 where he goes elaborates on that, and he's going to talk about the great high priest that we have. No, he's not descended from Levi, but he's descended from Melchizedek, whose father and mother we know nothing about. We don't know what tribe he was from, but we know that great David said in Psalm 110, I am going to make you my even greater son who is to come, not only king, but a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And just as you did, many of the readers of this epistle in the first century rolled their eyes when they heard about Melchizedek. Oh, please, we're going to get off and talk about Melchizedek? Really? What's the value in that? That's so esoteric from the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 14, it's probably the only mention, well... There is that mention in Psalm 110, which is significant. And Melchizedek actually is important. But you know what? I can't even talk to you about Melchizedek, even though you need it. We all need it. I need to tell you about this connection. But you aren't even ready for that. No? It's not time. I can't talk to you about that. About this... And that's the this, verse 11, about this, he's just said it in the very previous verse, verse 10, that Jesus was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. You know, about Melchizedek, I have a lot to say. It is a big subject. It's an important subject. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying, yes, let's go on to maturity. It's time to get on to maturity because you have spent too long in the stage of infancy. You're just babies. You're just babies. You're just eating milk. You're not ready for solid food. You're not having steak. You're not building up protein. You can go out and and do great exploits. No, you're still sucking your thumb. And when you're not sucking your thumb, you're sucking the bottle and you're drinking milk. And it's time to grow up. You've been too long in this infancy, um, infancy stage. And I'm going to tell you two ways to move on. I want you to go on toward maturity, having spent too long already in the infancy stage, by being taught. You need teaching. I've got a lot to say to you about this. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing, for both by this time you ought to be teachers. You still have someone to need to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He begins by saying that we go on to maturity by receiving teaching, by being taught. When we've got teaching in view, we've got two other subjects that come right with it. In teaching, you've got a subject, you've got a teacher, and you've got a student. As for the subject, the subject is Melchizedek and how Jesus being of the order of Melchizedek is actually so helpful for pulling together our Old Testament and our New Testament. The um, the previous revelation and now the final revelation that God has brought in His Son, as Hebrews 1.1 says. So we're going to pull all that together. You need to know about Melchizedek, and it's it's a big subject. I have much to say, and it's a difficult subject. It's it's hard to get to, but I'm going to get there. The subject is worthy, and we're going to talk about the subject, and I'm going to be your teacher. So the author is saying, I'm going to teach her. So you've got a subject, and you've got a teacher, and then he says something about the students. You've gotten dull of hearing. You're not listening anymore. You are not paying attention. He's already warned them twice in this letter before. You know, you better pay attention, he said in chapter 2. You better be careful and pay attention. You better not uh, become hardened in sin's deceitfulness You better not harden your heart when you hear God's word said. No, he has been really good about coming close to them and exhorting them life on life, telling them, and he does it a third time here. You're dull of hearing. You're not listening. You're not good students. 
You need to pay more careful attention to God's word and you need to be willing to receive from your teacher what he knows you need in order to pull together your Jewish background and your New Testament teaching or your teaching about Christ who is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. You got to pay attention and you're not. When was the last time somebody called you out like that? Okay, I know. That was your wife and it was yesterday. But when's the last time that a guy came alongside you and said, you know, you know I love you. You know I'm your friend. But you're messing up with your wife or with your child. I think you're being too hard on them or I think you're getting too involved with the grandparent. And when's the last time? And it had to do with a passage of scripture that the person brought to you and said, I just, I'm wondering if this maybe isn't something you need to hear. I'm concerned about you. Part of the issue is that we're not really concerned about anyone to that degree. It's just awkward to talk about a problem, you know, you're hard of hearing, you're not paying attention anymore. Well, who really wants to bring that up? And, you know, I got other things going on. I got my own family to worry about. I can't really talk to my brother here and I don't see him all that much anymore. And it's just, it'd be inconvenient and, and I really don't care about him that much. And that's the bottom line problem, right? Why we don't come alongside somebody and tell them what they need to hear. You know, you've gotten dull of hearing. But if we did care, then we could take God's word and say, I just wonder if this might, if this might be appropriate for your current circumstance. I know you're struggling. I know you've told me before that. I can tell the stress level and such. I just wonder if maybe this passage might be helpful for you. Or... If you're bolder, if you've got more of a relationship, and if it's clearer where your friend is falling off from following God's word, you don't need to do all that. Maybe this might be a just told, man, forget that. Just come right up and say, what on earth are you doing? You're an idiot. You know, why are you going there? You can't flirt with this woman and still be married to your wife. Stop it. Just forget it. He said, well, I'm not flirting. Yes, you are. Everybody's talking about it in the office. Stop it. It's ridiculous. You call yourself a Christian and you're doing that? Stop it. Whoa. I'm glad for this author. I'm glad that he says, you know, I've got an important subject. It's a big subject. It's difficult to understand, but I'm going to teach you because by God's grace, he's taught me and he's shown me what I need to pass on to you all. But when it comes to the student, the student's really not motivated, not ready to learn. And until that changes, I'm worried about you. In fact, we'll see just how worried about him he is as we go forward. About this Melchizedek theme, we've got much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Some have suggested, some commentators and some of you perhaps suggested, well, I, I'm off the hook with this passage because I'm not a teacher. Never been a teacher, don't have the gift of teaching, don't aspire to be a teacher, so this isn't talking to me. This is irrelevant to me. I'm of the other school that says that this is extremely relevant to every person here because I don't care whether you have the gift of teaching or not. There are individuals in your life that you are called upon to teach, namely your children, Namely, your wife, one-on-one. -on -one. Namely, another friend, one-on-one. -on -one. Someone who's just become a baby Christian and you've been a Christian for years. It should be within your wheelhouse to teach that baby Christian the basics. How does he put it here? The basic principles of the oracles of God. Every one of us ought to be able to do that. That is not the purview only of the ordained ministers of the gospel. Not even the purview even of just the gifted teachers who are lay people, but they're really good at teaching. No, every single one of us is called upon to teach one person at a time. You may be able to teach others, but if not, that's okay. This passage is still for you and for me that we are called upon to teach, whether it's my gift or my calling or it's simply my responsibility as a believer in the Lord Jesus. If I am going on to maturity, by this time in my Christian walk, I ought to be in a position to teach that brother the basic principles of the oracles of God.
It's possible even that the oracles of God statement is referring particularly to the Old Testament because that is how it's used in the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures are called the oracles of God. So you ought to, by this time, having been taught by me, by others, be able to instruct uh, a younger brother, younger in the Lord, maybe not younger chronologically, you ought to be able to instruct them in the basic principles of the oracles of God. But you're not. You've gotten dull of hearing. By this time, you ought to be teaching others. You still need to be taught yourself. What is with that? Get off your rear, get it in gear, and let's grow spiritually. We don't often uh, um, equate that kind of boldness with spiritually. If it's spiritually, then it's kind of namby-pamby, and it's kind of, you know, wring your hands, and I don't want to interfere, I don't want to intrude. Where did we get off thinking that it is not manly to be spiritual? It is manly to be spiritual, and it should make us better men, not lesser men. And we ought to be bold, and we ought to be loving, and so that we're willing to insert ourselves in somebody else's life in order to make a difference, in order to keep them from a reckless course, i got to tell you the truth, because I'm not sure who else is going to do it. Or, I know one other person has done it. I know your wife's been trying to get your attention. I even understand one of your kids has been trying to talk to you. But you are not getting it. You're not hearing it. So I come to you as your brother, as your peer, uh, or maybe even you're higher up than I am spiritually, but I'm here to tell you, you're not following God's word. And here's where it says what to do, and here's what you're doing, and there's not a match. Well, that's a different kind of passage of Scripture. We're not talking about Melchizedek anymore. We're talking about you and your capacity to learn and to listen and your willingness to learn and to listen, to humble yourself under somebody else's tutelage and to find out what is it that I'm missing about the Bible and somebody's going to tell you. And am I ready to grow in that to the point that I get to a, a place in my maturity where I'm not perfect yet. I don't know that much. I mean, I certainly don't know as much as all these people, but I, I have been a believer longer and I have been in some pretty good teaching and amen for the previous 20 years here. This year's been a little sketchy, but before that, we had great teaching in Amen, and I can, uh, I, I, could, I could help this guy. You should. You should. Every one of us should be reaching back to help this guy, even as I'm reaching forward to say, could you help me to that guy? On to maturity. After spending way too long as babies, and how do we get on to maturity? By teaching. We receive this teaching from someone that we submit ourselves to and say, hey, teach me the scriptures. It could be a book that you say that to, and that's fine. It could be an old dead guy that you say that to, and that's fine. But there's no substitute for the living in-your-face people either. Both trained and called and gifted teacher, that's fine. Or just gifted teacher knows a little bit more than you, that's fine. But... Somebody that will get in your face and will say, I don't know a lot about the Bible, but I know this, and it doesn't seem to comport, your life doesn't seem to comport with it at this point. But that's not the only way on to maturity. Teaching, very important. I think you've all heard me say that. It's very important. But we also go on to maturity by being trained, and there's a difference. Verse 13. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. Um, different words are used here. It's not so much instruction now. Notice a few of these words in verses 13 and 14. Unskilled. The problem is not a lack of knowledge. The problem is a lack of skill. I've got the knowledge, but I don't know what to do with it. You could hand me any number of tools that you know how to use well. Pretty much any tool. I don't know. I, my father didn't train me in that, didn't teach me in that. Uh, he laughed about it. His father didn't teach him much. I didn't learn much. So whatever I've learned, I've learned on the job training because plumbers were way too expensive. Um, and so I've just tried to learn. Now, and then I discovered that plumbers are expensive, but uh, messing it up so that it's a lot worse problem than it was, and then calling the plumber is worse. So 
I'm all for plumbers. I believe in division of labor. I believe in keeping the economy going. And so I've sent a lot of plumbers' kids through school, I think. But anyway, uh, we got to be trained. It's a matter not of head knowledge. It's a matter of skill. So unskilled uh, was the word that was uh, used here that's different than teaching in verse 13. Also, um, trained in verse 14. Those who have their powers of discernment trained. It's not that you're just being taught. It's you've got now the, the tool. You've got the equipment. You need to be trained in how to use it. And then this one other word, practice, constant practice. Not talking about education at this point again. Not talking about instruction. Not talking about information. Now I'm talking about transformation, that you are going to practice these skills that you have acquired and by practice, by constant practice, you will move from unskilled to skilled through training. Let's look at it another way. To teach is to tell somebody what they need to know. To train is to show somebody how they need to do. So knowing and doing, training and teaching, I need to be trained. I need someone to come into my life and to show me Certainly that's true with technology for me. I, I learn a lot better than by reading a website that's going to tell me all that. I, I, if I can spend two minutes with someone who actually has the same phone that I do and can go through it, I, I can learn so much more because they're actually showing me how to use it, which button to push, because I don't even know the terminology when they're going through those explanations online somewhat. You get that. You're, you're like that too. We need not only to be taught, we need to be trained. We need to be skilled. We need practice. We need to work on how to do with the scriptures, not just how to know the scriptures. It's not just head knowledge that we need. It is head knowledge that we need. But we need heart knowledge, application, acceptance, and we need hand knowledge. I need to know what to do with it. I need to know how to wield the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I need to know how to chop something down. I need to accurately handle the word of truth because I've been trained in that. Many of you did not get the privilege of being trained in your Christian lives. Uh, just as some of you didn't get the privilege of being trained by your father on how to change a light bulb or how to, you know, change the toilet seat out or how to fix the flapper on the toilet seat or how to, you know, fix a disposal or how to fix the car. How to, you just didn't get trained. And that's not a real fault of yours. It's just, a, what am I going to do about it now? So I wasn't trained then. What will I do to get trained now? I have this suggestion for you. You're looking around in your sphere of influence, your circle of friends, your brothers in Christ, and you notice somebody that you respect. So I, I, this guy seems to be able to do it. He's, he knows how to pray. I listen to him pray. I don't know how to pray like that. He talks about a relationship with God that seems very intimate. I don't have a relationship with God like that. I never pray out loud. I never would pray with my family. I go, oh, that's too private and personal. But that guy seems to be able to do it with ease. Um, he also knows his way around the Bible a lot. He knows places that I don't know. He just, There's your guy. I, I know this is awkward, Tom. I know we don't know each other all that well. But I just, I look at you and I think, you know how to do this with your Bible, with prayer, with, you know, helping somebody else grow, encouraging somebody. I saw the way you operated with uh, our other brother the other day. I was really amazed and impressed by that. So all, I don't know how to spit this out. I don't know what I'm saying here exactly. Could you train, show me how to do that? Could we get together maybe a couple of times and you just show me how have you gotten this facility with Scripture? Or how did you learn to pray? Or how, I'd be glad to do that. If you wait for that person to come to you and say, I know, uh, Carrie, that you're not praying very well, and you don't seem to know your Bible very well. I know mine really well. Why don't you come and learn from me? That ain't going to happen. None of you is really feeling too comfortable with that. You'd feel comfortable if you could tell somebody was struggling with how to pray or mention that. You could offer at that point, hey, I'll help you. Well, that's perfectly appropriate and great. But I'm just saying, for most of us, it's not going to happen that way. You don't. How many of you have uh, been approached to be a mentor? And you go, I'm, uh, me? 
I'm not a mentor. I need a mentor. Yeah, we all need a mentor. But you could mentor, but we don't feel qualified. But if mentoring put the responsibility on the mentee to come and say, hey, could you just tell me about your experience when you, how'd you find your first job? Any one of you would be willing to talk about that. So that's, I guess, what I'm talking about is that I'll take the responsibility for my training. I will train myself in godliness. And I will then find someone who seems a little farther along than I am and ask, would you please give me some training? Could you help me in this specific area? That's how we will grow on to maturity, having spent too long in infancy by teaching or by being taught and by being trained. Now, the author is going to say pretty much the same thing, but with a different metaphor and a different uh, stage of development along the maturity way. And he's going to say that in chapter 6. So let's look here. Therefore, we'll come back. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. And we stop there for today. But I'm going to tell you where we're I'm going to give you a clue of where we're going here in just a minute. On to maturity. Chapter 6, verse 1 gives us that theme quite clearly. Let us go on to maturity, having spent too long in elementary school. So, yes, you spent too long in infancy. You had milk diet alone for way too long. Now you need meat, and you haven't really gotten that meat. Um, there's something wrong with that. We'll work on that. But now I'm going to change the metaphor. It's not that you're a baby just drinking out of the bottle. No, it is now that you're in elementary school, but you're shaving. And there's just something not right about that. You know, I know we all have the stories that we played against other teams when we were in the fifth grade or the sixth grade. And that other team, man, those guys were twice as big as we were. They were all shaving. They were, you know, they had failed sixth grades and they're still playing sixth grade football. And they were killing us. And we were scared to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe that was true. Man, there may have been a few people like that got held back, held back, and they were bigger than you were, and you were scared. But truth of the matter is, um, we've been held back spiritually, even though by this time we ought to be in middle school, high school, college. You're still in elementary school. You're still needing to know what is the, how is it called in verse 1? The elementary doctrine of Christ. So it's elementary school. Elementary, my dear Watson. And we don't have that down. We are, we're not moving forward, and we need to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity and not stop again and lay the foundation over and over again. You've got this. We don't need to keep spending time talking about the basics. You need to move on from that and grow into the likeness of Jesus, grow into the image of Christ. But you're not doing that very well. So how can we move on to maturity after having spent too long in elementary school? In the first place, verses 1 and 2, by not repeating a grade. I'm not going to go back again and tell you, lay a foundation of repentance and dead works. Again. We saw that word in verse 12. So that by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now in verse 1 of chapter 6, not laying again a foundation of repentance. The, you've got the foundation. You are believers in the Lord Jesus. You have repented of your sins and put your faith in him. So repentance and faith are the foundation of the Christian life. Just as they've been the foundation of the Old Testament as well. It is on those twin pillars and you could even subsume one under the other. True repentance also has an element of faith in it. True faith, as James says, always has an element of repentance in it. So you can't really believe without repenting, and you can't repent without believing, without going towards something. So repentance and faith are, in fact, the foundation of the Christian life. And I'm not going to lay that foundation again because the author of the Hebrews is saying, I think you already have that. And it is a foundation that was laid in the Old Testament too, not just the New Testament. Yes, it's very clear from the preaching in Acts that, well, brothers, we are cut to the heart. What must we do? Repent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. 
And that's a message that I've kind of mashed together from Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 16. It's all these speeches in Acts. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent from dead works. Different people understand that differently. Some people, it's dead works. In other words, you're trying to do good works, but they can't produce life because they're your dead works. They're a sinner's dead works. None of them is adequate to produce life. So we have to get away from thinking that by good works, we will save ourselves. Another interpretation is that they're dead works because they are works that lead to death. They're evil works. You've got to turn from your wicked ways and turn to God. I tend toward that latter interpretation that this is talking about evil works. It's the same message as in the Old Testament. It's the message of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The same message that Jesus gave as he began his ministry. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the message of the prophets that they had said repeatedly, and not just the major prophets, the minor prophets, all the prophets, turn from your wicked ways. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Stop. Turn around and go to the Lord your God. Follow him. Repent, and then put your faith in Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true and living God. Forget the Baals. Forget the false gods of Assyria, of Babylon, Go with the one true and living God, repentance and faith. It brings the Old Testament and the New Testament together. We've got them both. That's your foundation. But in addition to the foundation, you need some instruction. And so four more topics are mentioned as part of this instruction. And the instruction has to do with washings, laying on of hands, resurrection, and judgment. What on earth does he mean by that? How are those part of the foundation? I'm suggesting not. I don't think he's regarding those subjects as necessarily part of the foundation. You've got the foundation, and then you've got this additional instruction uh, that you need. And it's possible that you can look at these as couplets. You know, repentance and faith go together, a couplet. So washings and laying on of hands go together. Resurrection and judgment go together. But I think what's helpful, again, is to think of the oracles of God, referring to the Old Testament, that these are subjects that are already mentioned in the Old Testament. And now they are also significant for the New Testament. But they're not all that there is, so let's get that foundation out of the way, let's make clear what that is, and then let's build on it with other things. So what does he mean by washings? Is it baptism? It's plural. It could be baptisms. It could be translated that way. But it seems rather to be referring to Old Testament washings. In chapter 9 of Hebrews, the author is going to talk about those washings. And there are all kinds of things sprinkled with water, sprinkled here, sprinkled here, sprinkled there, all these sprinklings. Do you not see, the author of Hebrews is saying, that those are all summed up in Christ? That all of those washings come together in Jesus who gave us one final washing that is good for all time, our baptism our washing by the Holy Spirit, which is outwardly signified by our washing with water in our baptism. That is the essence of this new covenant that is realized in Jesus. And the prophecy of that new covenant we find in several places, but Ezekiel chapter 36 is a really good one. Verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's by that washing that is ultimately in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, outwardly signified through water baptism, that we are changed and we see the fulfillment of all those Old Testament washings. So let's, that foundation is important. You need to know about washings culminating in that washing of baptism. You need to know about laying on of hands. In the Old Testament, they laid hands on their sacrificial victims. You know, I brought this bull in because I committed a bad sin and I really need forgiveness. And so I brought this, this big offering, this costly offering in. And so the priests say, okay, I want you to slit its throat. All right, so slit the throat, blood coming out, sound, everything. And I want you to put your hand on the head of that animal. And I want you to confess your sins over that. That you are deeply identified now with that animal. And that that animal died because you transferred your sin to that animal. 
and you transferred that animal's death back to you. You didn't die, but there was a death. There was shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So you, rep you identified yourself deeply with that victim. Well, that kind of laying on of hands happens still in the New Testament as well, where we see that the apostles laid their hands on others who received the gift of the Holy Spirit, that there was this transference, this sense of, okay, now you are deeply identified with Jesus. That same message of deep identification comes in the Old Testament when the Levitical priest Aaron and his descendants was told to raise his hands over the people and to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That he was saying, you are deeply identified with the Lord. You are God's people. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have messed up. But the last words you're going to hear from me out the door are, the Lord bless you and keep you. You're deeply identified with him. And then we come to the New Testament and we see this same blessing uh, being carried out by particularly our Lord Jesus, who from Luke we understand the last words that he said while on this earth were not, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, but rather words of blessing. Having told them that you have a commission to fulfill that involves all of the world, he was raised out of their sight. And as he was lifted up, he lifted his hands and he blessed them. We're not told what that blessing was, but it's not hard for me to speculate that it was the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face shine on you. That now the laying on of hands is communicating this radical identification with Jesus who is that sacrificial victim from of old, but I have to make another sacrifice later and then another one and another one and another one. This one is forever. One baptism, no more baptisms, one baptism, one sacrificial victim, once and for all offered, and therefore in Jesus we have this ultimate laying on of hands, this deep identification. What about judgment or uh, resurrection? Well, that's obviously super important in Jesus. You can't preach Christianity without the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 makes that clear. But even in the Old Testament, we have a picture of resurrection. Uh, Psalm 16 gives a picture of resurrection, and that's why Peter, Paul, can use that passage of Scripture to teach the resurrection. But in the book of Daniel, Daniel is told, at, the, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many righteousness like the stars forever and ever." That picture of resurrection and of eternal judgment comes from Daniel, from the Old Testament. The New Testament has much to say about resurrection offered in Christ and eternal judgment that is turned away because of our deep participation in Christ, our identification with him. So this foundation that involves repentance and faith then is augmented by this instruction that has to do with washings and laying on of hands and resurrection and eternal judgment. You've got all that down. You understand that. Now we're going to move on, and we're going to talk about Melchizedek. I brought up the subject at the end of chapter 5, or chapter 5, verse 10, and then I had to pull away from it. The author says, you're not ready for it. You're slow of hearing. You need to hear this stuff, but you're not listening. So let's stop, and let's have a little exhortation here. And then we're going to return to it. So at the end of chapter 6, he mentions Melchizedek again by segue. And then chapter 7, he's off into talking about Melchizedek again. All you need to know at this point about Melchizedek is that he's really important. And so stay tuned. We're going to learn more about Melchizedek in the upcoming chapters of Hebrews. For now, what's really important today is to understand that we need to go on to maturity. Having spent too long in infancy... And we need to go on to maturity by being taught and by being trained. We need to go on to maturity having already spent too long in elementary school. And we need not to repeat a grade. We're not going to repeat all of that information again. He says, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to go on. So we're not repeating a grade, but we're going to make a grade. And by making a grade, um, I have in mind chapter 6, verse 3. And this we will do if God permits not going to stop and do this uh, thing, uh, this foundation again, 
Now we're going we're gonna to move on from that, and this we will do if God permits. What does he mean there? I think he means I've got confidence that we're going to move on from this foundation and this instruction, and we're going to move on to maturity. You're going to move on to maturity, and I'm going to move on to maturity. We're going to go together if God permits. Why wouldn't God permit? God's got to be for that. Isn't God for your maturity? Of course he is. He's for my maturity. Of course he is. So how could there be any question? Well, there's a great mystery in this Christian life involving divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I'll put it this way. You're of the elect. You're Presbyterians, a lot of you. here. Oh, the elect. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're of the elect, so we're going to once saved, always saved. No, that's going to work out. And I know that I'm a believer, and so I, I know I'm not living like I should. You're right. I'm slow of hearing. Yeah, I'm not mature. I, I live for my own pleasure pretty much. And I've got a lot I could learn from a teacher. I've got a lot I need to be trained in. I, you're right about all that. But you know what? I'm just so glad for heaven, and I'm having a pretty good time here, so I'm not going to think too much about it, and I'm going home to be with the Lord because once saved, always saved, etc. Book of Hebrews will shake you up a little bit, Presbyterians. Because he's going to say, if God permits, you'll get home to maturity. But are you so sure that you're of the elect, even though you're not living according to the pattern that God's teaching us in his word? Are you, are you really sure? You're in direct disobedience to that passage of scripture, and you're claiming that you are sure that you're a believer? I don't know. I don't know. So, by making the grade, yes, we will move on to maturity, but keep reading. Keep reading Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a preview, and then we're going to conclude it. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. It's got to give us all pause. Can you lose your salvation? No, I don't think so. Once saved, always saved? Absolutely. But how do I know I've been saved? How do I have confidence in that? How, how do I keep that balance of divine sovereignty and human responsibility together? And here's, I think, what the author of the Hebrews is trying to tell us today. This world has real drama in it. Your life is not so mapped out that it's like, oh, God's got it all planned out. I don't know. It doesn't matter what I choose because my choice is irrelevant. It's God's got it all figured out. I'm just going to leave it in his hands. I may not be a Christian. I don't think I am. I haven't said, you know, but, but I may not be of the elect. If I'm of the elect, I'll be a Christian in due time. So I, it's not up to me. It's up to you. You have real choice. I have real choice. Not just in terms of whether we come to Christ or not, but once we have come to Christ, whether we grow on to maturity. Do not put that on God. Well, I'd be more mature, but God just hadn't helped me. He didn't send me people to train me. He didn't send me people to teach me. I just, uh, you know, I'm just not, I haven't gotten very far because I haven't had the opportunity to get very far. Well, whose fault is that? It's my fault. It's your fault. We need to take responsibility to grow up into the likeness of Christ who is our head. And so, Lord, have mercy and teach us. So we'll get next week to Hebrews 6, that very difficult passage and um, I'll study this week, so I'll know the answer by the time we get together again, hopefully. But no, we're gonna look, we'll look at it next week, and it is important. But this week, this week, hear what this author is saying. Grow up. Go on to maturity. And remember, in summary, how he's told us to do it. Three ways. We as Christians need teaching so that we know what to do. We as Christians need training so we know how to do. And we as Christians need encouragement slash exhortation so that we want to do. Which of those components of growth and maturity 
is lacking in your life right now? Where is the deficit? Where is that next step? If I were to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only today, I realize my application needs to come from, I need to get some additional teaching on subject X. Or I need to get some additional training in discipline Y. Or I just need encouragement. I'm just not motivated right now. Um, any of those could be the answer for you. I suggest that you, you know, think of one or the other. So that it, what is the one? Focus on the one. I want to put in a plug for that third one. I think we all desperately need encouragement, exhortation. We need somebody who will love me enough to stand in my face and say, hey, brother, you're not doing it. Now, it doesn't come across very well if the person that's doing the rebuking, I don't really know very well. He doesn't know my situation at all, and I'm just kind of, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? That kind of uh, information makes a lot more sense when it's coming from somebody that I know cares about me, and I suspect is probably telling the truth, or he's at least... He's picked up on something, and I need to trust him more than I trust myself. If you do not now have a band of brothers who will speak the truth in love to you and thereby grow up into him who is the head, Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, those verses that again speak of growing on to maturity, grow up into him who is the head by speaking the truth in love. If you don't have a band of brothers like that, you can always pray for that. And I would encourage you to do so. Pray for that. And then maybe cultivate that kind of brotherly relationship that speak the truth in love with one other person that you respect. You feel like I, there's some hope there. I, you know, I don't have to be saying you're more mature than I am or you're less mature than I am. I'm just saying you're my brother. And I need somebody to have my back spiritually. Because as great as teaching is and as great as training is, you get to a point where I really don't need more teaching. I've, I've learned so much. I've got postgraduate degrees in the Bible. I know so much. I don't need more teaching. I do, but you might think I don't so much. I, I've been trained in all the basic disciplines of the Christian life. I, I know how to do evangelism. I know how to have a quiet time. I know how to pray. I know how to pray in all these different ways. I know how to pray long. I know how to pray short. I know how to study my Bible, memorize my Bible, meditate on my Bible. I know all of that. Well, why aren't you doing it today? tired. I'm discouraged. I'm, I've got this situation going on at work. I've got this estrangement at home. We need brothers who will come alongside and say, hey, I'm going to pray for you this week. You need some help. You need some strength. You need to move on. It's time to move on to maturity. We've spent way too long in infancy. We've spent way too long in elementary school. It's time to move on to maturity in Christ, to becoming more like him so that the mind of Christ my Savior lives in me from day to day. I want that kind of transformation, not just information in my life. And through teaching and training and encouragement, God's provided the means to do that. How does our Westminster Larger Catechism put it? How do we grow into sanctification? By diligent application of the means of grace. God's given us the tools. He will give us his word, prayer, fellowship, sacraments, corporate worship, all these great blessings, and I need diligently to make application of them, remembering that they are means of grace, not law. He loves us. That's why he's given us these gifts. That's why he wants us to help one another all to get home safely.